Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. cambridgesavings.com/csb1. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. cambridgesavings.com/csb1. Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. I'm gonna make you an offer you can't refuse. So here's the deal. I will send you a check every month, somewhere around a thousand bucks, and here's what you have to do to get it. Breathe. That is the idea behind guaranteed basic income. It's that everyone, every single American, is entitled to a certain amount of money. It does not matter if you're rich, if you're poor, if you're somewhere in between. It all sounds very pie in the sky. Until you realize that there are conservatives supporting this idea, there are liberals, there are libertarians. So today we're going to take a look at how our lives would change if we actually got those checks. Would we stop working? Would it bankrupt the country? Would we all just be deliriously happy? In a few minutes, we're going to talk to a fairly anti-government guy who is actually for handing out money. But first, there was a town in Canada that tried this. The town is called Dauphin. It's about 200 miles north of North Dakota. And economist Evelyn Forger says it had about 10,000 people when the experiment started in 1974. Everybody in the town was made the same promise. If your income falls below a socially determined level, you'd receive a certain stipend from the government. If you went out and earned money, if you went out and earned $100 in a month, for example, your benefit would be reduced, but it would be reduced by $50. Now, many people want basic income extended to everyone. But in Dauphin, it was a lot more limited. Still, about a third of the families in town did get some amount of money. Forget is a professor at the University of Manitoba, and she has immersed herself in the data that came out of this experiment. She says to most people, it did not feel like welfare. The people who received the check understood it as an entitlement rather than charity. So I think there was an important distinction in in the way the program um, was defined for people. But it was also different in design. Um, It reached a much broader number of families than welfare checks did. Um, Welfare was very narrowly circumscribed. You have to meet a number of different behavioral and um, family characteristics in order to qualify. This was a much broader program. The only thing it depended on was how much money you had and how big your family was. So it effectively supplemented the incomes of the working poor as well. And that's what I think made a tremendous difference in terms of its impact on the community. One of the big questions that Forget had when she started studying what had happened in Dauphin was, does free money, it was called mincome at the time, minimum income, does that encourage you to stop working? And for two groups of people, the answer essentially was yes. One were married women. And they reduced the number of hours they worked in really interesting ways. They essentially used the guaranteed income to buy themselves longer parental leaves. So when they left the workforce to give birth, they stayed away longer than they would have done otherwise. And the other group that had a strong response in terms of work effort, and here the language is tremendously important. If you're not a supporter of basic income, you say that young unattached males reduced the number of hours they worked really dramatically. 
And if you are a supporter of the concept, you tend to use different language. So I would say that teenage boys um, reduce the number of hours they work quite a lot. And uh, we found those young unattached males in high school. And what was happening was that before income came along, a lot of young men in particular in poor families were under a fair amount of family pressure to become self-supporting as quickly as they could. So they turned 16. Legally, they were able to leave school and they received parental encouragement to leave school to take a job. When income came along, uh, some of these families decided they could support their sons in school a little bit longer. So the first effect we saw was a very large increase in high school completion rates and often during the period of the experiment. Hmm. And that's a really interesting outcome. So you had a lot of a sort of lucky cohort of kids who finished high school in a place and at a time where that wasn't common. And if you can imagine the differences in opportunities for those people over the subsequent 30 years, you can imagine the different kinds of lives these people would have led. I asked Forget what happened when she reconnected with these men who were basically just kids when the experiment was going on. What had become of them? So for many of these people, they were the first people in their family to have ever finished high school, someone on to college and to university. And I don't think that most of us um, imagine that our lives have taken the paths that they have because of a random government program that they might not even remember. So everybody tells themselves a story about, um, you know, up by the bootstraps and I finished high school because, because of my personal characteristics and my determination and so on and so forth. But um, when you talk to people in these families, and we did um, interview a number of the young men and a number of their families, it becomes very clear that men come played an important part in their lives. What also became clear to Forget is that when everyone has a basic income, not just the unemployed, but even people with low-paying jobs, there are some odd side effects. One of them is that hospitalizations go down, including hospitalizations for mental health. To me, this is just a clear indication that this kind of a program reduces the amount of stress that families are operating under. It reduces some of the terrible outcomes that come along with poverty. So in some ways, you've uh, got people who are worried less about getting lunch today, and all of a sudden that's just sort of like one thing lifted off their shoulder. Absolutely. If you're not worried about feeding your kids, you're much less likely to, to be under the kind of stress that leads to family violence or that leads to excess alcohol. Um, consumption and so on. So as you know, there's a ton of discussion now in cities, in countries around the world about should there be a basic guaranteed income? It's just sort of starting to bubble up and become a real policy discussion. Do you think that there are cities, countries that can draw any big lessons from this one experiment in Canada 40 years ago, small town, you know, a lot of places that are deciding this are many times larger. Is there anything to draw from this experiment? I think there is. I think, first of all, one of the things that comes to mind immediately is that it's possible to do this. I think for a long time, people have been arguing that this kind of program is simply too costly, that people will stop working, that will have terrible adverse economic effects. And I think that the one conclusion we can draw with absolute certainty is that most people don't quit real jobs because they'd rather live very close to the poverty line. If you're making $50,000 a year, you don't quit a $50,000 a year job in order to live at $20,000 a year. Um, And secondly, I think that we're often very focused on the costs of this kind of a program without realizing the costs that poverty imposes on a society. I talked about health care. Well, health care is a tremendously expensive um, undertaking. Much of it is paid for from public funds. 
But it's not very hard to imagine that there are a lot of other social programs where expenditures, costs are related to poverty. So if you think of things like special education, for example, mm -hmm. the higher the poverty rate, the more we spend on special education. The higher the poverty rate, the more we spend on um, child and family services, on children's aid, on programs to offset family violence, to deal with um, the hardships that people face. The experiment ended after five years in 1979. And what did the Canadian government and the whole world conclude from this big test? Well, not that much, which you can chalk up to politics. They literally locked the doors on the records, um, which sat in an, an office building for a number of months and um, then shunted back and forth between various custodians. And it was in the form of paper records. I found 1,800 cardboard boxes full of wow. paper records, totally disorganized. It's really interesting that you would go to the trouble to do that experiment and then not milk it for everything it was worth because exactly. you did it already. Yeah, you might exactly. as well. And it's totally the result of the politicization of the experiment. People yeah. didn't want the results of the experiment because yeah, the yeah. people who were in power by the end of it didn't want to see in the first place that it might have worked, in which case there'd be some pressure to make changes to social programs. Evelyn Forge, thank you so much. This is great. You're welcome. When out on the street today the Canadian dream was as far away as it's ever been as it's ever been We were curious about what your average American would think about a guaranteed basic income so we went out on the streets of Boston to find out It's $1000 a month for anyone who needs it Uh no I don't agree with it I think people should earn their money in one way or another, either by going to school to have a trade or developing a career or something like that, yeah. It seems like an okay plan for sort of a baseline a social safety net. Maybe not everyone needs to receive it. Maybe there could be an upper limit of what your base income is, but it seems generally okay. And what would people do with an extra 1000 bucks a month? It would probably just end up going towards student loans or rent or basic needs. Uh, I would continue to work. I, I might change what I'm doing. Uh, it might give me an opportunity to, to pursue things that I, I find more interesting. And in the long run, that might uh, be more productive. It would be $1,000 a month? Yeah, I would still work. <laughs> so what would you do with extra money? And should we have a guaranteed basic income? You can email us at innovationhub at wgbh.org. You can also tweet at us. We're at iHubRadio. We're talking today about money, what it can buy you, what it means when you don't have it, and whether we actually have a shot, and this may sound crazy to you, at having something in the U.S. called a basic income. So that would be money that every single adult gets every year. It would be something like $1,000 a month, but there are suggestions for more or less than that. And what has surprised everyone in our office is how much this idea is starting to gain traction, how many articles are being written about it, and how many liberals and conservatives are both starting to consider this. Even the slice of Americans that you might think would be most opposed are starting to warm up to it. I've always, uh, as long as I've been politically active, I've always been very sympathetic with libertarianism and the idea that uh, that government which governs best is that which governs least. 
Matt Zwolinski is a leading libertarian thinker. He teaches philosophy at the University of San Diego, and he's written a lot about his belief in a basic guaranteed income. And the thing that convinced me first about the basic income was the fact that it's simply a much more effective policy for fighting poverty than many of the more uh, invasive and, and cumbersome regulatory solutions that are often pursued by governments. He says the way that we deal with poverty now is a crazy patchwork quilt, and the quilt might have more than a few holes. So we spend close to a trillion dollars federally and at the state and local levels in the United States on various programs to combat poverty. And at the federal level alone, there are over 120 of these programs. That leads to a lot of complexity and administrative bloat in government. And it also makes things very difficult for recipients. Uh, if you're somebody who wants to claim the benefits to which you're entitled uh, by these various government policies, you often have to go to a lot of different offices. You have to fill out a lot of different forms. You have to find out, first of all, what programs you're even entitled to. And that by itself can be a very difficult task. So one of the main virtues of a basic income program from a libertarian perspective is that it dramatically simplifies the administration of government. It reduces unnecessary government bloat and costs. And it makes things considerably easier for recipients in terms of actually receiving and, and putting those benefits to use to make their lives better. Now, when people say basic income, they mean a range of different things. When you envision the basic income you would like to see, who would get it? And about how much do you think it would be? So I favor a basic income uh, at a level of about $10,000 per year. Uh, and that's a number that I got from another libertarian, Charles Murray. Now, if you just multiply $10,000 by the population of the United States, you get a very, very large number, uh, which, looks, uh, which looks to many people like it would essentially bankrupt the government of the United States. So now you're faced with a dilemma. Either you've got to make that number smaller, in which case now it starts looking like you're not going to be giving people enough money to really do anything with, right? If you drop the number from $10,000 a year down to, say, $5,000 a year or $4,000 a year, it's not really clear that people are going to be able to survive on that kind of income. And thus, it's not really clear that the basic income is going to serve the purpose for which it was established. On the other hand, the other thing you can do, and this is the route I favor going, is you make the grant less than universal in some way. So not everybody gets it, or at least not everybody gets to keep it. So on Murray's plan, the grant is given to everybody, right? Everybody gets the $10,000. But come tax time, if your income rises above a certain threshold, and I believe on Murray's proposal it's something like $25,000 a year, uh, that grant starts getting taxed back. So you pay a progressively heavy income tax on the grant uh, such that, you know, once you get to the level of, say, making $100,000 a year, you're essentially paying back all of your $10,000 to the government. I see. I see. Okay. Now, I wonder, though, if you think it would be a problem getting approval for that sort of plan. Because, you know, one of the things, if you look back at the history of um, Social Security, one of the things that made Social Security palatable across the political spectrum was that it was given to everybody. Do you worry that when you say to high-income people, but you don't get this $10,000, they're going to say, then I don't support it? I think there's a psychological difference between not getting any money at all 
and getting money and having to pay taxes on it. Uh, so <laughs> uh, functionally, those two things might come to the same, but I think uh, I think people react to it differently. And if we're talking politics, you know, psychology and how people react to stuff is is highly relevant. So uh, I think, look, you're just you're not going to be able to devise a basic income program that provides people with an adequate amount of money if you don't make some kind of distinctions between people who are really poor, right, and people who are really rich, and give more money to the former group than to the latter. Well, you know, you said if you cut the $10,000 a year to like 5000 that's not really going to be enough for anybody to live on. But is that what you're really trying to do? Are you trying to make this a livable income so that people can stay at home, not work, and live on this? Or are you just trying to make it a supplement so that oh, they have a little time, a couple months to look for a new job or something and not be out on the street while they're doing it. Yeah. So different advocates of the basic income have different goals uh, behind the income, right? So my goal uh, is to uh, ease the burdens of poverty and to free workers from uh, the kind of dependence on their employers that I think in some circumstances can be coercive. And so if that's your goal, and that's a fairly limited goal, uh, then I think a smaller basic income is feasible. It still can't be too small. It has to be enough to pay the rent, keep the lights on, that kind of thing. But uh, it doesn't have to be as large as the kind of basic income favored by certain other proponents. So there are some people, for instance, who think that uh, the traditional 40-hour-a-week job is going to disappear in the very near future mm-hmm. because all of those jobs are going to be taken by robots. And so we have to find something completely different to do with our time. And so they look at the basic income as a truly sort of living income. This is supposed to be enough all by itself to support you because most people aren't going to be working at all uh, in the near future. Right. Well, I'm actually going to play you a clip from Andy Stern, the former head of the Service Employees International Union, the SEIU, one of the big unions out there. He is a believer in exactly, as you said, the idea that automation is going to take jobs. So I'm just going to play for you a clip of him laying out essentially the liberal case for a basic income. We all agree we want to end poverty. And I think we also all could agree that all the different welfare systems we've put together right now haven't done that. And so the idea is to do what Martin Luther King said. If you want to end poverty, don't give us categorical programs, give us cash. And so the idea is you would give every American every month a $1,000 check, uh, which is really their, their share of the American wealth. And that allows them to have some stability, some venture capital, some ability to take risks. And it sort of ends this idea we have welfare as opposed to we have more of a universal social security system. I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Matt Zolinski, a professor at the University of San Diego, about this idea, which has been talked about a lot lately, of uh, the government maybe cutting a check to everyone every month and providing a basic income. Matt Zolinski, when you think about the Andy Stern, the sort of liberal argument for doing this, Does that resonate with your own beliefs? Yeah, I think the idea of alleviating poverty, providing people with opportunities, the freedom to uh, live their lives in the way they want to live their lives without uh, the the burden of uh, having to make enough money just to make ends meet, that is an attractive uh, vision to me. And I and I agree with uh, with Andy that uh, the basic income is is much much better than a lot of other policies that we have, um, largely because a lot of the other welfare policies that we have in countries like the United States are uh, are heavily paternal. Uh, right, so we don't quite trust 
poor people mm -hmm. uh, to make their own decisions about how to live their lives. After all, if they knew how to make the decisions, they wouldn't be poor. Uh, that's what a lot of people seem to think. Um, and so we think, right, we, we can't give them cash. We've got to give them food stamps, right, uh, vouchers that they can only use to purchase the things that we think they really need, or food stamps or housing vouchers, for instance. Uh, advocates of a basic income, whether on the left or on the right, I think, are united in rejecting that kind of paternalism um, and saying that if we give people cash, uh, they are uh, likely to use it in, in responsible ways. And that assumption, uh, kind of grounded in, I think, maybe a view, a certain view of human nature, that assumption is, is really fleshed out by the empirical evidence that we have about a variety of cash transfer programs throughout the world. Um, we haven't had anything like a full universal basic income tested yet. Uh, we had the experiments in Manitoba. Right. We had uh, short-term experiments on the negative income tax in the United States um, during the uh, the 1970s. Uh, but those programs were were short-term, very small in size, and and not fully randomized. Uh, and so we don't really have good data from those programs about how people would respond, not just to a short-term two- or five-year program, but to a program that's going to be in place for the rest of their lives, right? You might not quit your job if the government tells you you're going to be getting a check for the next two years. Right, but if right. the government tells you you're getting a check forever, that's going to have a very different effect probably on how people are going to behave. How do you think that your vision of a, of a basic income where people are getting, let's say, $10,000 a year, and it's only when they get up into, you know, making thirty, forty, fifty, sixty, $70,000 that they start giving back more and more of that till maybe they've given back all of it. Um, how do you think that vision reshapes the American economy? Like, what does it do for us that we don't have going on now? Well, there's two important things from my perspective. The first is that it effectively addresses the problem of poverty. A lot of the programs that we have right now, and uh, I have in mind especially the minimum wage, uh, are directed towards working Americans. Uh, and they leave out of the picture uh, people who are unemployed, either because they, they can't find a job or because they're, they're staying at home taking care of children and they haven't been actively looking for a job. Uh, my view is that if you want to address poverty, then you should target people who are poor, not just people who are working, uh, which might only be a, a small subset of, mm. of, the work, of the actual poor. The other thing it does, I think, is that it, in a sense, it liberates us to realize the most exciting possibilities of capitalism while minimizing its downsides. So right now, everybody knows that capitalism has has problems with it. We worry about uh, that workers being exploited at the workforce. They're not given uh, adequate time off or the, the safety conditions there aren't bad. And we've right. tried to address those problems with this regulatory framework. If you can provide American citizens, employees with a basic living income, then I think a lot of the pressure for that regulatory framework goes away. In a sense, you're protecting workers not by telling their employers what they can and cannot do to them. You're protecting workers by giving them a way out. Yeah, by, by saying, like, I a... have resources. I don't need this job, right? I don't That's need to right. be mistreated, that kind of thing. That's right. That's right. So by doing that, by that one simple step, by moving from a regime of regulation to a regime of redistribution, 
you free up capitalism to do what it does best, right? To allocate resources in a way that sort of maximizes efficiency and economic productivity, while at the same time providing a real substantive protection for those people who we might have thought would be in the most danger of uh, falling victim to capitalism's excesses. So let's talk for a minute about political feasibility. Uh, you mentioned before the writer who uh, many would put uh, classify as a libertarian or a, a conservative, Charles Murray, who has said, let's do this $10,000 a year thing. Let's send people that money and have that be for every American. Does it feel to you like there is movement amongst liberals, conservatives, libertarians, to actually potentially push forward something that seems in some ways like a, a massive and, and kind of crazy idea. If you had asked me even a year ago if I thought that the basic income was a politically feasible program, uh, I would have said, of course not. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of utopian dream. It's a dream I like to talk about and think about, uh, but the chances of it actually going anywhere politically are, are virtually zero. But a lot has happened in the last year. And I think the way in which the basic income has attracted real interest from people with actual political power mm -hmm. in Finland, in Canada, in France, um, that's exciting and that changes things. Right? So we're going to have some real data that we can point to when we turn around in other countries and say, look, you know, this is, this is how this actually works. We could do this. We could try this. I think the promise of a basic income is that it potentially can serve as a, a real point of bipartisan agreement between people on the right who like the idea of personal responsibility, right, of, of leaving, of, of sort of sh shrinking the role of government in, in poor people's lives and letting those people make decisions for themselves about how to spend their resources, and people on the left who want to provide a real effective uh, and generous social safety net for the poor. The difficulty, I think, with bringing together libertarians and conservatives on the one hand and, and liberals on the other in support of a basic income is that most of the people who support a basic income on uh, my end of the political spectrum support it only as a replacement for a large swath of currently existing welfare programs. Hmm. So we want to get rid of the minimum wage. Uh, a lot of us would like to get rid of uh, SNAP and TANF and perhaps even um, Social Security, uh, at least Medicaid and, uh, um, uh, and, and programs that are aimed at helping the poor. And that's a difficult exchange to sell to the political left, most of whom favor a basic income as something that's going to be added on to existing welfare programs rather than a replacement for it. Matt Swolinski is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of San Diego. He is also the founder of the Bleeding Heart Libertarians blog. Matt, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. We've got lots more about basic income on our website, including the countries that are considering it right now, and the various cases that conservatives and liberals and libertarians are making for it. That's at innovationhub.org. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Look at them yo-yos, that's the way you do it. Play the guitar on the MTV. A 
If you've ever taken out a mortgage, or if you do someday, you will find this one piece of paper in the mountain of documents that you're handed. And this particular piece of paper, at least to me, is the scariest part of the mountain because it tells you how much the mortgage is going to cost over time. And often the amount that you're paying over 15 or 30 years is double what you're borrowing. If you're getting a subprime loan, the numbers are even scarier. Now imagine paying on a mortgage-like installment plan for all sorts of things. Your laptop, your cell phone, your car, and paying at a subprime rate. This has become huge business. And if you don't pay, your lender now has the technology to deactivate your car or deactivate your cell phone or your computer remotely. Sarah Jong has written about this trend, which has mostly been under the radar. She's a contributing editor at Vice Motherboard. Sarah, thanks for being here. Thank you. So talk about this rise that you've seen uh, in the subprime lending of different physical objects and what you think is going on here. Right. So there are rent-to-own laptops. There are cars backed by subprime loans. And, you know, subprime lending isn't anything new. The difference is that with these devices, which, you know, aren't houses, they're things that you can carry away with you, they're equipped with um, software or hardware that basically lets the lender control the device from far away. So a car can be equipped with GPS and um, what's called a starter interrupt device, which is basically a kill switch. Hmm. So if you fall behind on your loans the lender will activate the kill switch and your car won't be able to start. Does and I mean, I mean, you park your car, you go into the laundromat or you go in and get the mail or something or, you know, whatever, and you come back out, try to start your car and it doesn't start. Yeah, because you fell behind on your payments. Mm, yeah. Well, and, the you know, you talked about surveillance. There's also a rise in very scary surveillance that I knew nothing about, which is the idea that if you have, for example, one of these rent-to-own laptops, you're renting it, renting it, renting it, and then eventually the idea is kind of like your home or something, you'll pay off all the payments and you'll own it outright. Um, But if you're sort of renting it and you're not making the payments, or even if you are, they can take pictures of you. You know, every almost every laptop has a, a little camera can take pictures of you and you have no idea that, you know, you're naked and walking around your house and pictures right. are being taken of you. Right. And and technically this is illegal, but um, the worst part is that they, they would do this thing where they would have this fake pop-up that came up on the, on their laptops mm. and they would, it was like a, a pretend software registration prompt, but it was, it was fake. Like they would have to put in um, like their their address and contact information into the form in order to access the laptop. And this information would get sent straight to the lenders so that they could go and call people up and um, it would go to collections essentially. Some of this uh, software that allows you to take pictures of people and stuff is called detective mode. Um, and you've called it a mustache twirling moment of villainy in the history of commercial surveillance. Now you said it's really not legal to just take pictures of people's children or, or, or people naked yeah. or whatever. But how much effort is there really to shut this stuff down? 
Yeah, so uh, FTC went after these stores that were using detective mode. But detective mode is actually just a module on another piece of software called PC Rental Agent, which is on hundreds of thousands of computers, like all around the world. And it's software that lets the lender control the computer. Like, detective mode is extreme because it lets you switch on the, the webcam. It does all of these really deceptive things that, like you, you said, mustache twirling villainy. Yeah, like the, it's, well, it's, it's, very like it's really extreme. It's, it's, it's right. scary to think that somebody is looking at you all the time in your home. I and mean, that's just a frightening thought. Right. It's like, who thought this was a good idea? But I think what it reflects is how prevalent the main software is. There are in our devices so many ways for others to control the device. So especially if we're debtors, it lets lenders control the device. But you also have uh, the software that's being distributed through schools um, when they give their students laptops. Um, There was this big case out in Pennsylvania where they found out that the school was taking pictures of of children on their laptops, um, the school-issued laptop. So, yeah. Kids at home. Kids at home or kids at school? Yeah, so they would, like, switch on the webcam and sort of view what they were doing. So this one kid got in trouble for uh, doing drugs in his home. And Mm. then it was like, wait, how did you know? And it turned out it was because they had seen him through his webcam. Wherever you have this kind of capability installed... Eventually, someone is going to do something really extreme with it. Most of the time, you're going to have people who, you know, exercise common sense and, like, don't take pictures of children in their bedrooms, right? Right. But then, even if it's a minority of cases, if it's this prevalent, like, a minority of cases is still going to be way too much. Now, you know, what if somebody took the opposite view and said, look, you know, clearly this seems really invasive and it's not good to take pictures of people or to have kill switches on, you know, in cars or in computers or whatever that stop them from working. But look, if you don't pay your bills, we deserve to repossess or shut down your car or your computer or whatever it is. Right. Debtors are sort of expected to sacrifice some of their liberties. Like, that's why we put up with, like, collection calls. But throughout history, we've treated debtors as though they deserve less than everyone else. And that, I think, like, that basic assumption should perhaps be challenged. And here's the other thing. The reason why subprime loans exist is because these people who take out subprime loans are expected not to be able to keep up with the payments, right? right. Like, they, their credit is is not so good. And that's why the interest is terrible, because they don't really have a choice. So why are these subprime loans still being issued in devices that are much easier to recover because they have GPS and kill switches and all kinds of things? If it's much easier for the lender to recover what's been loaned out, why is it that you still have to pay subprime rates. It doesn't make any sense. It's just exploitation. You know, we uh, see now, when you look at the numbers, household debt, and that includes all sorts of things. It could be student debt, um, credit card debt, mortgages, car loans. They're currently, for Americans, at about three times our annual income. So for a lot of people, the notion of paying off debt, you know, or being anywhere close to that is just it's a fantasy. They're not going to be there anytime soon. 
does the growing power of lenders, coupled with all this technology to then control the devices that they lend out, does it worry you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're going to be living in the society where, for most of us, we just have less and less property. And it's not just you. I was going to say, it's like the flip side of the sharing economy, which in some ways people think is great because... There aren't as many things maybe floating around, like everybody individually doesn't need to buy a car. But the other side of that is you also don't control a whole lot that is quote unquote yours or that you need. Right. And it's not just that you don't control it. It's controlled by a private corporation. It's not controlled by a co-op. It's not controlled by the government. You have no share in in what's buzzing around you. You're renting your house. Mm-hmm. You're using rideshare services that are... Uh, operated by a private corporation, you're renting your technology. It's a world that, just financially speaking, I think I, like people can see the downside to. As consumers, do you think there's anything that people can do about this? I mean, you know, I think of the agreements that we say yes to all the time when we're like yeah. downloading an app or we you know sign up for something new on our computer or whatever, and nobody reads anything. Yeah. <laughs> they just say yes. I mean... I- Yeah. I think that, uh, so I don't remember the exact statistic on this, but um, someone calculated how long it would take for everyone to like actually read that agreement, right? If you read every single terms of service agreement, every time you did anything and like like a normal person did something day to day, I think it would take like years and years. Yeah, it would would really slow you down. You would be accomplishing a lot less in your life, I'm sure. Like you, you just, like you can't. There needs to be sort of this greater role for regulation in um, at the federal level to enhance privacy and security for individual consumers. They've done, you know, they've had some good actions. They've gone after some abusive practices. They've gone after hotel chains that oh, practice some really negligent security. But ultimately, they're stepping into this power vacuum. They're trying to fill a need that you know, the Federal Trade Commission isn't, like, necessarily, they, like, when they were formed earlier in the last century, like, they they weren't, that wasn't what they were supposed to do, mm-hmm. right? I, I think that ultimately sort of the state of affairs, like, sort of the, this vacuum in regulation is, just means that the federal government hasn't really stepped up to deal with these pervasive problems in our society. Hmm. Sarah Jong is a contributing editor at Vice Motherboard. We will have a link to her article in The Atlantic on how tech helps creditors control debtors. That's at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub. So what was the last thing that you liked on Facebook? I asked a few friends this question, and what I heard back was cute dogs, posts about friends moving, and pictures of cute kids. Well, it turns out that some people, not the people I asked, but some people, are paid to like things on Facebook. 
And if you're one of them, you will like pretty much anything. Director Garrett Bradley looked at the booming market for buying likes in her film, which is aptly titled Like, and to make it, she traveled to the place where an extraordinarily high number of likes come from, Bangladesh. Garrett, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I don't know if most people realize that you can buy likes. So explain (laughs) a little bit what that market looks like. Well, the market looks like a lot of different things. You know, I can speak, I'll I'll sort of start, I guess, specifically with Bangladesh, which is that when I had originally embarked on this journey to tell this story, I had actually pitched it as as a sweatshop labor scenario, that this was something that people didn't know about, that a lot of Westerners were paying people outside of the country in south in southeast asia predominantly to to generate likes for them and that this was you know that they were getting paid very little money and that they had horrible working conditions and this was based on things that i had read in you know legitimate news platforms um, and then when we got to dhaka when we got to bangladesh which is where 40% of a lot of this activity happens it was like a 360. It was a completely different scenario. It was maybe one of the better jobs that a person could get. Huh. It was a lot of young, college-educated men who you know, didn't want to do physical labor. And also, because the market is so crowded to become a doctor or a lawyer, you know, there were, employment is few and far between. Hmm. So the internet, which you know, there's a great accessibility to the internet, in other parts of the, I mean, in Dhaka and Bangladesh, I should say. Right. And so the, it's sort of, almost, it's almost like a no-brainer. Well, I can work for myself. I don't, I don't have a boss. I can, I can work from home. I can work for five minutes. I can work for three hours. There's a real sense of autonomy there, that I think resonates with people, particularly young people. It sounds like a very boring job. I mean, you're talking about a bunch of college-educated people doing this. I mean, if somebody said to you for the next couple hours, just sit there and like things on Facebook and do that every day. Um, And they're not necessarily things you like. It's not like you are liking the wedding pictures of all your friends. You're just liking random stuff. That doesn't sound very intellectually stimulating. (laughs) Well, yeah. So it gets pretty deep, I'll be honest with you, because I think that on one hand, some of the people that, that I spoke with felt a, a great sense of pride, actually, mm. in the work that they were doing in the sense that, you know, they are generating something that is in high demand and that is really needed by people, by individuals or by companies, whether you're, you know, selling face lotion um, or a band, how people perceive you is based on how other people people, how many people like you, right? Likes beget likes. And so those, these people who are working in Bangladesh, a lot of them are in a position now where they are, they are contributing and helping people get what they need and what they want. I mean, and that, that's, that's, those aren't my words. Those are the words of some people that I spoke with who Hmm. felt that they were in a position of control, actually. You have said, I think this number is right, that there are more than 4 billion likes every day on Facebook. Is that right? I believe that was in 2013. I can't okay, speak so for this year. Okay, so it's probably more year. now. Um, yeah. <laughs> how how does Facebook feel about so many likes maybe being bought and so many likes coming out of honestly this one city in Bangladesh, which is a really extraordinary situation. Mm-hmm. I can't speak for Facebook, obviously, but I I can say that I think they're attempts 
to create their own branded platforms for this demand, like boosts, campaigns, promotions, paid likes, is in direct response to the fact that there is an alternative market that they're aware of and that they're losing money and that that money that's going to those other places like Dhaka and Bangladesh, they would like to see in their own uh, pockets, <laughs> for mm. lack of a better word. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I don't know if it's uh, I think it's, you know, it's business. It's all big business. And they're, you know, Facebook is very much aware of that. And I don't think that they're going to let something just sort of exist through their platform without benefiting from it. How much do you see a dismantling of the uh, very brisk business that's happening in Dhaka? Like, how much is that going to fall apart, do you think, over the next, you know, year or two, maybe? Well, it isn't. I think it's important to note that it isn't illegal. So there really aren't many grounds for it to be banished. So if you go to our Facebook page, you know, unofficial like movie on Facebook, you'll see we have almost 4,000 likes. And if you look at who those likes are from, you'll see that most of them are from Bangladesh. Hmm. And so what Facebook does... Now, is that because you paid for them? We did pay for them. Okay. (laughs) We we paid for them, and then since we've stopped paying for them, we've continued to generate likes. Okay. Right? So, and I think that's a key point because, again, it goes into the idea. It's this sort of, like, high school mentality of who's cool. The cool kid has tons of people around them, and as long as those people are around them, they will continue to be cool. But if they don't have people around them, then they aren't cool anymore, Mm -hmm. right? It's the same idea that we're dealing with on the Internet here and with advertising and with product placement. Let let me go back for a second to the actual experience, you know, of the people who are paid to like things. Can Mm -hmm. you give me a sense of, you you talked about in the beginning thinking, oh, this is going to be a a sweatshop situation. These people are going to be in really, really poor conditions and be very unhappy. Can you talk a little bit about um, what your day is like if one of the things you do to make money is like things on Facebook in Bangladesh? Uh, I mean, Joel, for instance, who was one of the main subjects in the film, he's a painter, um, and he had tried to be a lawyer. His parents were very adamant about that when he was in school, and it just his heart was not there. He wasn't interested in it. So he'll wake up in the morning, and he'll go on Facebook for his own purposes, just to interact and engage with people from all over the world. You know, he talks about his friends that he has in Japan and all over the place, and that's that's real. That has real value to him. He'll have some tea. He'll have some breakfast. He'll leave his house. He'll take three different modes of transportation to go into the central part of the city. He lived a little bit outside of Dhaka. And he works in a building that uh, is relatively empty, um, has lots of natural light, (laughs) two computers in a room. There was a a guy who brings him tea whenever he needs it, every three hours or so. (laughs) He takes cigarette breaks. um, And then he goes home and paints. Where do you see this going? Is the market for likes getting bigger in Bangladesh? Is it getting uh, trickier because, you know, Facebook is just sort of more onto the situation and shining more of a spotlight and trying to trim it down? Or is it migrating to a different country? Like, what do you see? Um, Well, we, in the process of making the film, we actually did a bunch of interviews with people in New York who kind of specialized in thinking about technology and culture. Um, And Jessie Hempel at Wired was was one of the interviewees that we spoke with. And she had some really brilliant ideas about this whole this whole thing as a concept. And one thing she said that I that really resonated for me, at least, was that 
we're moving more and more in a direction of artificial intelligence and that this is still kind of like the analog version Mm -hmm. of what is to come. Mm -hmm. Um, That soon people like Joelle will be replaced by ourselves as individuals through cookies and through Google indexing our own desires and interests. And so we will essentially be looking at ourselves as a mirror uh, constantly. Um, It's always going to be in reflection to our past interests or potential interests and not so much in relationship to other people, if that makes sense. Garrett Bradley is the director of the film Like, about buying likes on Facebook. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. You can find out more about Garrett Bradley's film Like at our website, innovationhub.org. If you got the money, I've got the time. We'll go honky-tonking and we'll have a time. We'll make all the night spots, dance, drink, beer, and wine. If you got the money, honey, I've got the time. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Caroline Lester, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Jonathan Gang. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Public Radio International.